Turn to the book of Matthew. You probably already figured that out. Uh, We are in the middle of this series. We've been studying some of the men found in the gospel of Matthew. We've uh, been going, uh, this is week number six of this uh, series of studies. And we've looked at a number of different men. Some of them we knew their names, some of them we didn't. And uh, tonight we're going to be uh, we're going to be in the in the 19th chapter of Matthew. If you want to turn there, and we're going to be looking at the man who wanted to live. And I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but you'll know exactly who I'm talking about in a moment because this is one of the most famous men in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, and yet we don't even really know his name. <coughs> Excuse me. We're gonna we're gonna zero in on Matthew 19 uh, on verse 16 and the verses following. However, I want you, before we read that, I want you to look at your Bible and, and let's just get the context in our minds of, of the passage that we're reading. Beginning in verse 13, we, we see three very brief verses of Scripture concerning Jesus' attitude toward children. You remember that the disciples, uh, when the children came and they brought children to see Jesus, they wanted to turn the children away. And then Jesus said, allow them to, to come for such is the kingdom of God and and then in verses 16 through 26 is the passage of Scripture on which we're going to zero in this evening. And then starting in verse 27, you'll see that Peter asks the question. He asks, what about all the things that we've give, given up for the kingdom of God? And then Jesus' answer to him runs all the way through the end of the chapter. Now the reason I've gone through all of that is to say that this passage of Scripture about this man who is commonly known, as you probably already figured out if you looked in your Scripture, commonly known as the rich young ruler. This passage uh, is, is not just in Matthew, but the story is also in the Gospel of Luke and is, is in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, interesting, if you remember when we talked about Matthew a couple of weeks ago, those are the other two synoptic Gospels. And if you remember, that just means it comes from a synopsis where they're just telling the events of the life of Jesus. And, and so both, both of those recorded, it's in Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18. And, and in both of those other two gospels, in Mark and in Luke, the story of the rich young ruler is between the very same passages of scripture. It's in exactly the same context as that of Matthew 19. And now you may hear that and you say, well, what's so remarkable about that? Well, it would be less remarkable if every passage of Scripture in those three Gospels were all in the same order, but they're not. Uh, It would also be less remarkable if the stories were tied together, connected in some way. But but notice that verses 13 through 15, the story of the children coming to Jesus and the disciples trying to shield Him uh, from them, and then Jesus saying, allow them to come for such is the kingdom of God, that has really no connection at all to the narrative of the rich young ruler. So why would it be then that the Holy Spirit would go to all of the trouble to arrange this passage of Scripture to be in in exactly that context every time it is recorded? Because this is what I believe about Scripture. I believe that everything is right where it's supposed to be. The Holy Spirit has the power and the ability to do that. And so I I don't think it's an accident that it's recorded in exactly the same way and in exactly the same context every time. So let's see if we can get some insights into that as we begin reading in in verse 16, the story of the rich young ruler, the man who wanted to live. It says this, 
Now behold, one came and said to him, Jesus that is, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may, may have eternal life? Now before we keep reading, please note that the word good is used twice in the first verse. It might be a little different depending on if you have a different translation. But as I read there, he said, good teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And also notice that, that in that first verse, he also uses the I word, I or, or me. He said, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, now with those things together in your mind, look at verse 17. So he's, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but, but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, now, now I want you to notice this, the, the young man, and we're going to be, this is important for what we're going to talk about tonight. The young man asked the question, what must I do that I may what? Well, in the, in the version I just read, that I may have, what's the verb? That I may have life. What must I do that I may have life? But Jesus in reply says, if you would enter life. So that's a significant difference. He says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, or honestly, or truly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The, 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 the word, uh, uh, there is the, the verb again, enter. It's hard for him to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the re regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All right, the rich young woman. Three brave warriors went out together for the great annual rabbit hunt. There was King Lion wily fox and their friend the donkey they slew many many rabbits it was a great hunt they, they were they were proud of themselves and they stacked the rabbits up in a, in a tall heap and the lion looked at the donkey and he said you divide you're the best counter so the donkey began in his laborious boring way one for you one for fox one for me one for you one for fox, one for me. Each time laying a rabbit at the, at the feet of the person to whom he was counting. One for the great lion, one for the wily fox, 
One for, for me, one for you, one for Fox, one for me. And he'd only gone around about four times when with one massive swing of his forepaw, the great lion hit the donkey a horrible blow and he broke his neck and killed it. And then he took the donkey's body and pitched it up on top of the pile of rabbits. Then he turned to the fox and said, now you count. And the fox took two rabbits, laid them at his own feet. And then he said to the lion, you take the donkey and all the rest of the rabbits. And the lion said, oh my, I should have had you count the first time. You, you count so well. Who taught you to count? And the fox said, that stupid donkey. The book of Proverbs says that a wise man will behold the destruction of the wicked and get wisdom. There, there's a story here that we've just read, uh, tragic and pathetic as it is, from which we may gain much profit to our souls. The, the story of this man, the so-called rich young ruler, is a man who, who simply couldn't count. He couldn't add up one and one to get two. He, he, he misunderstood everything that was going on. He came to the wrong conclusion from everything that was said to him and therefore came to the wrong decision, tragically, pathetically. With, with the kingdom of God at his very fingertips and with Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of God, so close that he could touch him, he missed everything. And insofar as we know, he is in hell to this very day. Now, I'm not the greatest counter in the world, but I'm willing to learn from a stupid donkey, aren't you? So let's see what happened, because he made three mistakes. And we can learn not only from the good things people do, but how many of you know we can learn from mistakes as well? And it doesn't, it, you know, a really wise man can, it doesn't have to learn from his own mistakes. He can learn from someone else's mistakes. So let's look at this. He made three tragic mistakes. And the first one is that he, he misunderstood Jesus. Look at verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He wrongly estimated the one who stood before him. And, and Jesus just uh, refuses to allow it to lie there. I mean, it, it, it might have been considered a, a nice compliment for him to say, good teacher. I mean, that's a, that's a nice thing to say to somebody, right? I, I, him saying, it's like him saying, I can tell you're a good man. I, 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 I can tell you you're, you're, you'd be a good master. I can see that you're a good teacher. However, Jesus will not just accept that. It's, and it's not because Jesus is claiming not to be God. There are commentaries out there that have written that said Jesus is here, that he's denying any claim to divinity. But nothing could be further from the truth. What he is doing is he is forcing the man to make a choice. When he says no one is good but, but God. God only is altogether righteous, perfect in every way, without any sin, without any shadow of turning. Only God is altogether perfect. Is this true or not? It is true. Therefore, to call any man good teacher is a lie. Either he is not good, and if he claims to be uh, good, then he is a liar and a charlatan, or he is altogether good, and if he is altogether good, then like Jesus, he is who he claims to be, God himself. So Jesus is not denying his divinity. He's, he, he is, in point of fact, forcing the man to make a choice. He's saying, you call me a good teacher, but there's nobody good but God. Are you willing to admit that, that I'm him, that I'm God? He's saying, count correctly. 
Count correctly. If I am good, then I am God. If I'm not good, then you've counted, in, in, you've counted wrongly. You know, we must, in this confused generation in which we live, um, we must not only count correctly ourselves, but we must refuse to compromise on the world's estimation of who Jesus is. Jesus is not just a good man. He is not just a great teacher. He's not just a wonderful example. He's, he's not, as many would like to make him today, he is not the guru of humanistic ideals of social justice. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ of the ages. He is the hope of Israel. He is the seed of the woman. He is God, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-existent, co-eternal Word of God. And I'm just, listen, this is the single greatest giveaway about cults. The dead giveaway of a cult is that they will compromise on who Jesus is. They'll say things like, oh, well, he's, he's just like, a, he's just another archangel. He's the archangel Michael, or, or Jesus is just some great prophet, or Jesus is, he's just one of many sons of God, or, or Jesus, they might even say, well, Jesus is God, but he's not part of the triune Godhead. But wherever we, wherever we compromise, we count wrongly. We count just as poorly and, and, and just as dangerously as the donkey did when he was counting out those rabbits before the lion. And if, if we miss on this one point, we will find ourselves with our necks broken and we ourselves added to the heap. We must count and we must estimate correctly. Jesus is not just a good master. He is not just a good example to follow. He is not just a great teacher. He's not just a, a good moral man. He, he is not to be ranked equally with Buddha or Muhammad or any other teacher that's ever walked the face of this, this earth. Jesus is the Son of God, the, the Word of God. He is God. And unless we have this clear in our minds, we ourselves will not understand the implications of it. But, but more than that, we will not be able to articulate it to this age. Ask yourself this question tonight. What do I really believe to be true about who Jesus is? And can I articulate it to those who ask, uh, ask of me? Well, the second grave mistake the man made was that he misunderstood the place of the law. First, he misunderstood Jesus. Second, he misunderstood the place of the law. Look at verse 16 again. He said, Now behold, one came and said to him, Jesus, or excuse me, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He, he, is, he is drawing a direct line between what he does and the opportunity for him to have eternal life. A direct line. What must I do in order to have? This is a man, and we know this from, especially from later on in the story, we'll see. This is a man for whom having things was extremely important. Having things is the single greatest reality of his life. He, he has a great deal. But what he wants to do is he wants to add eternal life to the pile of things that are already in his life. I mean, life for him is, is swell. I mean, he, he's rich, he, he's well off, he's comfortable. He, he wants this to last forever. So he wants to add to all of the things that he already has. That he, he wants to add to his perfect life, to his perfect house, to his perfect car, his perfect setup. He wants to add to all of it so that it will never end. Therefore, he says, what must I do 
to have eternal life because life is great. I want this to last forever. He wants to hold it in his own hands. You just sense a a sort of a proprietary nature to this. But not only that, with his plan, he is going to buy it with his own righteousness. Now, I I want to say this to you. There is a, a very subtle and very dangerous works righteousness happening in the body of Christ and in the evangelical community. And it often goes unidentified and therefore the alarm never sounds. And it actually takes on several different forms. We will mention a few of those maybe tonight, but, but, but sometimes it goes like this. You know, we, we say to ourselves, salvation is not by works, lest any man should boast. It is by grace through faith. It, 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 it is the work of God. It is a, a gift of God. We know all that in our heads. We say all that with our mouths. And then, and then some guy comes into the church from the streets. And here's a guy who's just completely strung out on a Sunday morning. And he comes up to the altar straight from the streets. And it's, it's obvious to everybody that he has destroyed and ravaged his life. And somewhere deep down inside of ourselves. Now, now listen to this. I, I want you to hear it. Somewhere deep down inside of ourselves, we say... Thank God that guy's going to get saved because he really needs it. He really needs it. Then another guy comes forward to join the church. Now, now listen, we, we teach her here and we make, try to make it very clear that joining the church cannot save you. I mean, you can join every church from here to Michigan and, and you will not be saved by joining a church. The reason the guy comes forward who is strung out on drugs is because he knows he needs to be saved. But the person who thinks he can get saved by joining a church or going to church or by just trying to be a good good person, that person has drawn a direct line between what he does and what he has. All his life he has said things like, I work for what I have. I I earn what I have. I pay my own way. And the the line for him between those two points is a very short and direct line. He's done it so methodically. And truthfully, this is a a good, clear American line. I I mean, we're supposed to draw that line. We we pay our way. We don't take charity. I earn my way. And and it's all correct. It's all right because we must live in and under the economic systems of the present age. But, but here's the problem with it. We, we live that way and we begin to think that way. But the problem is you cannot make that work in the kingdom of God. You cannot make that work in the kingdom of God. You cannot say, I'm going to earn my way into this thing. We have to say to, what we have to say to people is you, you cannot work your way into the kingdom of God But once you're in the kingdom of God, you must now, in a sense, justify yourself in the eyes of the world system by operating under and through the principles that work in the world system. But you do that in a way that glorifies God. Therefore, we are saved by faith and not by works. But once we are saved, we must work in the world diligently, faithfully, drawing that straight line. I do, I have, earning our way in this world but not trying to apply it to our salvation. Now, what has happened in America today? What's happened? Well, in America, we have drawn the line in the wrong kingdom. 
We have said in, in the world system, in our modern American socialist thinking, I don't do, I will have. So we say that the world kingdom works by charity, but the kingdom of God works by works. You understand what I'm saying? How we, we flip-flop those things so many times in today's culture. It, it, because in American thinking, Western thinking, we think that I, I don't have to do in order to have. I have the right to have whether I do or not. And then we flip it around and we, and we think, well, how are you going to get to heaven? Well, because I'm a good person. So we, we flipped it. Those two things are upside down. They, until a society gets these two lines right, that society will continue to crumble. In the, in the ecosystems of the world, I do, I have. But in the kingdom of God, he does, I enter. He does, I inherit. He dies, I receive. He dies, I live. You know, in C.S. Lewis... Uh, Brilliant writer, brilliant thinker. He, he wrote a book called The Great Divorce. Anybody ever heard of The Great Divorce? Well, uh, there, there's a passage. Of, now, let me just clarify. The Great Divorce has nothing to do with marriage and divorce. It has nothing to do with, with marriage at all. It's, it's a book about the separation between evil and righteousness. So between heaven and hell, it's an allegory that he writes. And so it's a story that, that represents things that, he, that he's trying to teach. And in this book... What happens is different people die and they, they get on a bus to heaven. And as they're on the bus traveling to heaven, each, each person on the bus has the opportunity. Now, this is not scriptural. Don't, understand, don't misunderstand. This is just an allegory making a, a, a point, a specific point. His point was basically that God's not sending anybody to hell. They're choosing to go to hell. But, uh, but the people on the bus, as they're traveling to heaven... A spirit from heaven would come and visit them and have a conversation with them and, and deal with whatever issue they had in their life. And, and so one part of this, what happens is uh, his point, he's making the point that you can't see the kingdom uh, of, of God through the eyes of the world and really understand it. So now, as I set this up to, to tell you what he, what he wrote, uh, you got to remember that he, C.S. Lewis was an Englishman and he was writing to English people. So there, there are passages in the book that, in, a, in effect, are wasted a little bit on Americans because what he writes is not shocking to us. However, they were written for deliberate, intentional shock value with the English audience. And, and at one point, there, there's a man who has been a very hardworking, diligent, proper English materialist. He dies, and, and on the journey to heaven, he has this conversation with a spirit sent from heaven, and he's, he's going to be in the story. He's going to be allowed to enter heaven, but he has to accept grace. And the whole concept and the idea of grace is explained to him, and he looks at the, the spirit, and he says, you're talking about charity. And the guy who's explaining to, grace to him uh, says to him, yes, charity. And the man looks at him and he says, I don't take bleeding charity. Now, now to the English audience, that is a shocking curse word. Uh, it, it's just a shocking curse word. It was terrible. To use the word bleeding in a proper conversation would be shocking to them. Now, in this room, you say it and nobody cares. It doesn't have the same impact. It doesn't have the same meaning here. However, in, in England, if you walked into a church like I just did and you said that out loud in a church, you would just rock that church congregation with those words uh, because you'd be, you'd be shock all those nice church people and you've got to remember 
the people who were reading C.S. Lewis's book, they were nice church people. So this guy looks, he says, I don't take bleeding charity. And the guy explaining heaven looks at him and he says, ask for bleeding charity. And then he says, everything is here for the asking and nothing can be bought. He says, take bleeding charity because that's all we've got. And that's, that's really what the cross is. The cross is bleeding charity. However, the problem is we want the kingdom of God to operate by the worldly system of, a, of the direct line of I do, I have. What can I do that I can have? Jesus says that line won't work in the kingdom economy because the coin of the, of the realm is faith. You can't work your way into eternal life, but, but Jesus, in response to this young, rich young ruler, he has to lead this rich young ruler to see this, that you can't, because he's just coming with this proposal saying, what do I have to do to, to have eternal life? And Jesus has to lead him to see, to see, you can't draw that line, not in the kingdom of God. So he responds to the rich young ruler in a way that, that leads him deeper into this insight. And Jesus says, well, you want, you want to do to have? Well, you know, the law is right before you. You're a Jew, you know the law, obey the law, just follow the law. Now, now watch the man's self-righteousness. He, has to, he wants to justify himself, so he says, well, which laws? Jesus said, well, you, you know, look at, look at him. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't bear false witness. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself, obey the law. By now, I, I just get the feeling that the conversation is getting a little bit brusque. And Jesus is saying to him, obey the law. You, you see the law bef before you. you. You know it. All the while, Jesus knowing how the man is going to respond. Now, now watch what the young man says. He says in response to that, all these things I have kept from my youth. Really? I, I wonder. I mean, Really? Has he now? Look at what he's saying. He's saying, I do. I have. I have done. So I have. I have because of what I've done. I want more. I want more. So tell me what else I can do. You know, just pile some more rules on me. Give me some more law. Give me some fresh insight, some revelation. Give me some neat little idea that, so that I can pile up the poker chips a little bit higher in my life. I can make it work. I can draw that line between what I do and what I have. I, I'm going to get more. Tell me some other thing. Come on, tell me something to do. You know what? I'm telling you, there are teachers in the evangelical community today, today who who, who make a great living by piling law on people who claim to live by faith and, and, and they just pour it on them. Obey the law, obey the law, obey the law. And it's not always in the way that you think. There are some very legalistic, but there's also, there's this, any time somebody says, if you do this, God must do this. That is legalism and that is absolutely, that is absolutely not grace. I do, I have. However, the book of Romans says the righteous shall live by faith. Well, now then, at this point, Jesus, he just, he sort of breaks through just a little bit. Look at verse 20. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, now watch, the, 
The man changes the economic term, terminology. I do, I have. He, he has said up to this point, what must I do so that I might have more? Now what does he say? He says, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? This is the first time that the young man has indicated that there is any kind of want in his life. Somewhere, something is missing. I have all of this, and yet something is missing. And then the third great misunderstanding of this man is this. The first is that he misunderstood Jesus. The second is that he misunderstood the place of the law. And the third is that he misunderstood himself. He keeps trying to explain himself by the law. He keeps trying to explain himself by all the things that he owns. He keeps trying to explain himself by the things that he does. There's a uh, Broadway play, a very old one. I, I don't even know if anybody here would ever heard of it. I've never seen it. I just, I just heard about it. Uh, but it came out many, many years ago. It was called A Thousand Clowns. Anybody ever heard of a Broadway play, A Thousand Clowns? Well, in it, there's a character who is a very frenetic television personality. And in one scene, he's in a private conversation with a friend of his. And, and in this conversation, this, this character is so nervous. It's just all this nervous energy just keeps bubbling through. And he just keeps fidgeting all over the place, playing with his tie and just doing all these things. And his fin friend finally eventually says to him, why do you keep playing with your tie and all that stuff? You're making me nervous. And the guy says, now, now listen to this. He says, I keep touching myself to make sure I'm still here. I'm telling you, I think that there are people who live like that. They, they look in every full-length mirror. They, they pass to make sure that everything is just right because that's how they understand themselves. And, and, and just to see if there's a hair out of place, to see if there's anything wrong with their perfect clothing. You know, the, 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 and I hope nobody takes this wrong, but the, the contemporary American emphasis on physical fitness, it, it's a fine thing. It, it's, it's all right. It's good. It's, it's, uh, to be fit is better than, than to be unfit. And to, it, it's bad for your health to be unfit. I understand that. However, listen, I believe that a great deal of what goes on in the health clubs and in the gyms is the glorification of self. I'm not saying it's wrong to be part of the gym. I'm not saying it's, I mean, it's good. It's good. But, but, but it but it's, can be an absolute exaltation of I do, I have. I work, so I possess this great body. I run, uh, so I'm slim. I do, I work. I pump iron and look how I look. And, but the constant emphasis on the phys physical self, which is by, by its very nature temporary, it can have a negative impact on the soul and the spirit because really, if you're focusing on the temporary, even if it's your body, it's really about materialism. It's the same thing. It's about something temporal, something that will be gone, a, a temple, a, a tabernacle, if you will, that's not going to last. I mean, you know, when I was, when I was young, I mean, anybody can relate with me on this. When I was like 18, it just seemed like I was going to live forever. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You could do anything. My, now, you know, I still try to do the things when I was 18 sometimes, but I've, I've discovered, the way I put it, is that my brain keeps writing checks that my body can't cash. Can anybody relate to that? But, but what, here's the thing. The more we force our eyes to focus on something that is temporary, 
the less we're able to fix our gaze on things that are eternal, on heavenly principles and, and concepts. You know, I mean, listen, I have seen guys out running at stupid o'clock in the morning. I don't know if you knew that's a real time. Um, but I've seen them up, you know, before the, before the sun. I've always said, if God wanted to see me to see the sunrise, he'd have made it at noon. That was my, my philosophy. But, but anyway, you've seen guys out at stupid o'clock running in a driving rain. And, and I'll tell you right now, and, and some of you already know this about me, but I'm an avid non-runner. And if you, if you, the day you see me running down the street in a driving rain at five o'clock in the morning, do not go back in your house because uh, run for it because something bad is after me. The, the dam is broken and the flood is coming. Just, just run, call 911 because something bad is going on. But now, now listen, that guy that's running, I admire the guy's discipline and I'm, and I'm not challenging his faith at all because I don't know anything about his faith, but but I, I can't help but ask myself, I wonder if he pours that same determination and discipline into that part of him that's, that, that, that will still be there when his legs can no longer move. Because there's going to come a day, I don't, care, I don't care how hard you work out, I don't care how healthy you eat, there's going to come a day when these bodies are going to break down, when this body's not going to function anymore. Then... Am I going to be regretting that I have wasted, well, not even, I wouldn't even say wasted, but that I have, I have invested so much time and energy in something that was temporary and neglected that which is eternal? I wonder if he's ever, if he's been able yet to, to make the connection that there is something eternal in him that his body is not going to last forever, but there is a part of him that is. Or, or does he keep reassuring himself every time he looks in the mirror? Oh, yeah, I, I'm thin. I'm strong. I'm fit. I'm going to live a long time. And you just don't know that. I wonder how much of the millions and millions and millions of dollars we spend in this country on makeup and hair products and hairstyles and clothing and all those kinds of things in an effort to reassure ourselves that we're still there and that we still matter. What Jesus is saying is that there is a self in you which transcends all of those temporary things. So now this, this man begins to look inside of himself and he says, I have and yet I lack. There's something missing in me. Now this is the crucial moment in this whole exchange. At this moment, this, this, man, this man cracks the door open ever so slightly for that shaft of light to shoot into the dark room of, this, of his tiny little materialistic life. He says, I lack. Something is missing here. I have done. I have. I'm rich. I'm powerful. I'm, I'm, I'm handsome. I, I have all these things. And, and yet I lack. What is it? What do I still lack? And Jesus seeing the door briefly cracked open, plunges in with a dramatic, dramatic statement. So look and see what it is. Verse 21. Jesus said to him, if, if you want to be perfect, now it probably should read something more like if you want to be perfected or something like that. He said, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have. Now stop there for a moment. Look at the contrast. The young man is saying, I do, I have. What shall I do that I might 
have more. Jesus says, not if you will have. He says, if you will be. If you will be, have less. Jesus turns the economy of the kingdom on, on, this, on this young man upside down. If you want to be, not have, the kingdom is about being, not possessing. If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, now listen, those who try to say that this is a blanket statement that Jesus tries to say that everybody should do this, that's not what's going on here. Jesus is dealing with this young man right here with the issues that are in his life. Now, this, this lesson is going to apply to many of us who are dealing with uh, materialistic uh, ideas and, and concepts in our minds, but, but this is not a blanket statement. But but this is what's going on here. And, I, and I, I think this is a good way to maybe help understand this a little bit. Suppose there are two men coming out of a department store where they've been Christmas shopping. And they walk out in this December night. The cold, blustery wind greets them both in the face. Snow is just floating down. You can hear the Salvation Army volunteer ringing his bell on the corner. And one man comes out and he is just beaming and smiling and his arms are just laden with packages. He, he has, out of his prosperity, bought gifts and presents and indulgences and candy and all the things that his loved ones want. And, and they pile up before him and he can barely hold the mountain of what he has. The other man has almost nothing. He has a 75, 75 cent coloring book for his five-year-old downcast he, he just leaves having nothing they walk out the same door at the same time and they come to the same street corner at the same moment and the one with the packages blocking his vision steps in the pathway of an oncoming truck and is killed for the sake of what he had the man who had nothing clutching his coloring book in his Shaking fingers, stares at the dead body of the man before him and stares at the packages now scattered uh, uh, across the street and destroyed by the tires of the speeding truck. And he says to himself, thank God I could see. Thank God I could see. Listen, it is not a sin to have much. However, if we have so much that we cannot see who we are and who Jesus is. We cannot see the economy of the kingdom and the oncoming truck. Then we will die, not for sin, but for what we have. Therefore, having is not a sin, but it is a sin when I allow having it to replace being. When I allow having to replace seeing. When I allow having to distort the way I count, the way I see, the way I perceive, when I allow having to distort the way I understand this present age and the spiritual realm, then I will die for my poor reckoning. This is a, a fascinating, there is a fascinating passage here. If, if you look at, at the response of the man in verse 22, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had, now we're back to had, for he had great possessions. The rich young ruler 
was blinded to his lack by all that he held in his arms. There's a fascinating passage in a novel. I can't even remember the, the title of the book, but in the story, at one point in time, a man takes his fiance out to his cattle farm. He, he owns thousands and uh, thousands of, of acres, and, and, he, and it's filled with just thousands of great, you know, all the, on this grazing land of these, this prime uh, livestock and these, these cattle. And he takes her out there, hoping to impress her with his wealth. And, he, and he, they stand there on this hill looking out over it, and he says, these are all mine. And she says, what? He says, these cows, they, these are all mine, and the, and the ground upon which they stand, and the fence, this is, this is all mine. The dirt is mine, the grass is mine, the cows are mine. Thousands and thousands of acres, they're all mine. She says, is it? Put it in my hand. He says, well, I, I can't put it in your hand. She says, then in what sense is it yours? Is it yours right this minute? He said, yes, yes, it's mine. I own it. She says, well, have you eaten it? He says, are you crazy? I can't eat all these cattle and all this territory and all this dirt and all the fencing. And she says, well, then it's over there and you're over here and the control that you have over it only exists in your mind. Well, just to know, the, the romance didn't last in the book. I mean, who can live with that? But there is a way in which Jesus asks the same questions. We say, I have this house. I have this business. I have this skill. And Jesus says, do you now? In what sense? We say, oh, well, I have this piece of paper that says it's mine. I, it's registered in the county courthouse. This is mine. And Jesus says, forget your paper. If you have a cerebral hemorrhage and you're lying in a hospital bed tomorrow, what good will that do you? If you're dying, what, what good will that paper do you? The, the, these are the same questions. Having, being, owning, possessing, being blind, seeing. I, I, and I know, listen, I know this is a very complicated teaching I'm giving you tonight, but, but these are the questions that are at the very heart of what Jesus was about Jesus, at one point, you'll remember, he said, what shall it profit a man? What will it profit a man? Now, Jesus understood he was talking to businessmen. He said, you understand profit and loss. If you wind up the whole thing and, you, and, and at the end you show a loss, then you went bankrupt. He said in Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Jesus says, hey, Try that profit and loss statement. If you live a millionaire and die a millionaire and go to hell for eternity, you were carrying so many packages that you couldn't see the truck. It's not that there's any virtue in being broke. That's not what I'm saying at all. Trust me, there, there is no great holiness that abounds in the life of somebody who's poor just because they're poor. We're, we're not required by the Gospels anywhere to take a vow of poverty. Now, for some of us, it has sort of just worked out that way, but we've never, nobody's taken a vow of poverty. You're not required to. It's not in the Gospels. The point is, though, that if you can't see the road and you can't see the truck coming, then you're carrying too much stuff. And that's what this whole passage is all about. The young man says, I have, I want more. 
Jesus says, you want more? Do more. And he says, I've done it all, but I lack something. And Jesus says, all right, now you're talking. Now you're starting to get it. He said, if you want to be perfect, get rid of some of the stuff. Because you can't see over the bundle of packages in your arms. And in response, the man reverts to the vocabulary of the present age. Verse 22, it says, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away sorrowful, saying, I have so many packages here that I can't see you anymore, Lord. The stack is so tall that I can't seem to hear you. And please, again, don't let anyone misunderstand what I'm teaching tonight. I don't want anyone to leave here thinking that somehow or another that there's something patently wicked about having, having possessions. I mean, I don't believe that. My wife and I have a beautiful home. We, have, you know, we, we drive decent cars, at least by our standards. And I have plenty of clothes to wear. We are, especially by world standards, we are prosperous. The issue here is not having. It's not about having. The issue here is about the vocabulary of the word, world. Excuse me, I'm going to say it correctly. The issue here is about the vocabulary of the world diluting our spirits until we can no longer speak the vocabulary of the kingdom. Because the vocabulary of the world, the way it works in this world is I do, so I have. And if we, keep, if we speak that language too much, it can delude our spirits to the point we know, where we no longer remember the true vocabulary of the kingdom. I do, I have, works at the supermarket. It works in your career in business. But it does not work in the kingdom. Because it's not I have that matters in the kingdom. I am is what the kingdom is all about. I am. In uh, Death of a Salesman, you'll remember Willie Loman speaks to his son Biff at one point in that great American tragedy, and he says, you know, Biff, I still feel temporary about myself. And I think that sense of temporariness drives us. It, it compels us. It's like somebody, you know, uh, just cracking a whip behind us and, be richer, have more, succeed, build something bigger, glorify yourself. So, so we build monuments to our own ego, mausoleums of materialistic wealth. And, and listen to this. This may be shocking to you, but, but even philanthropy, even giving can actually be a means to do in order to have. And I'm not just talking about the false teaching that goes around where people say that we're supposed to give in order to manipulate God and force Him into giving us more. I'm talking about even outside the church, outside of the kingdom, uh, where, where, it, where even giving can become something to do in order to get more fame, more glory, more prestige, to get the, the applause of men. Jesus says here, the issue here, is that you have so, you have so much that you are nothing. And the man goes away sorrowful. Now, all the while, the disciples watch this whole thing unfold. And this is the part where you have to, we have to put ourselves into, the, into first century Jerusalem to understand the impact of all this. Jesus goes through this long, complicated exchange with this man. He then he turns to his disciples, and I believe that Jesus is disappointed. One place we're told Jesus loved this rich young ruler, that he loved him. There's something about him. I believe that Jesus, 
had hopes for this young man. And I think Jesus held the door to the kingdom open and the light shined in and this guy couldn't see over the packages in his arms and he, and he turns around and walks off. And in my mind, I can just almost see the shoulders of, of the master just sort of slump saying, oh no. And then Jesus turns around to his disciples and he says, you know, it is just about impossible. It's very difficult for a rich man to go to heaven. He says, it'd be easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle than it would be for a rich man to go to heaven. Let's put that statement into a modern English. Jesus said, it'd be easier to drive a BMW through a, the eye of a needle than it would be for a rich man to get into heaven. And the disciples, it says, are astonished. L look at the verse, 25. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. They're amazed. They are shocked when Jesus says that. Why? Why? Well, it's because the prevailing teaching of Judaism at the time was that there was a direct line between righteousness and possessions. There, the teaching was that there was a direct line between righteousness and health. What you do determines what you have. If I have, it's because I have obeyed. I have done the law. That's what the Pharisees taught. Do the law and God will back you up. Do and have. This was the whole essence of Phariseeism. It's still the essence of Phariseeism because they don't call themselves that, but we have plenty of modern-day Pharisees. But the essence of Phariseeism was that if you obey the law, God is obligated by the law to give you wealth and health and whatever else you, you need and what, whatever you want. That, that's, that's what the entire book of Job is, is about. I mean, this guy does everything and he winds up with nothing at one point in time. We know it was restored later because he learned something. And all of his quote-unquote friends... They come around and say, the reason is because you broke that line somewhere. You, you don't have because you didn't do something right. Now, the truth is, Job's argument back to them is, is really no better than theirs. See, Job's argument is, yes, I have done right. There is a line. I drew it in the, in the dirt right. There it is. I've done perfectly. I've done good. And he, in essence, said, God's the one who hasn't obeyed the law. And he said, and he said this multiple times, something along the lines. He said, if I could just plead my case before God, I will be vindicated. I have done so I should have. And if I could stand before God, I'd say a, a thing or two. Now listen to this. A great deal of modern charismatic theology and teaching in the body of Christ today is in the process of redrawing the line that the book of Job, three-fifths of the Bible, and the life and ministry and teaching and, uh, and death of our Lord was trying to obliterate. This is not about the law. It's not about if you do this, God must do this. This is not about doing to get. This is, about, uh, this is not about paying your way. You know, where somebody says, well, if I go to Africa and be a missionary... God will have to do right by me. He'll have to, to do whatever. So then that, that person, that missionary, is lying there and as he clutches the shaft of the spear through his chest, he then says, you're a bad God. I did and you didn't give. But he missed the point. Salvation is not about doing and getting. It's about being and entering. The disciples they hear this and they say, this, this is wrong. 
This is against everything we've been taught our whole lives. We were taught that the most likely people in all of Judaism to go to heaven were the rich people. We've been taught that the poor people were poor because they were sinners. The sick people were sick because they were sinners. If you, if you go blind, it's because you've sinned. If, if you get muscular dystrophy, you sinned. If your child dies, you, you've sinned. If your business goes bankrupt, you sinned. You're getting what you deserve. You did, you have. And now Jesus says that rich people have the hardest time getting into heaven, which ought to, ought to be a, a, an alarm bell for us living in the richest nation in the history of the world. And they were like, well, wait a minute. If the rich can't go, then who can go? And Jesus says, now watch, he, he doesn't, now I want you to don't misunderstand. He's not saying, he's not trying to say it's easier for poor people to go to heaven. That's not the point of what he's trying to say. He's trying to, he's trying to make a point that great possessions can become something that blinds us to our need for God. And he says, with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. Now, I believe at this point, the disciples who were, who were first century Jews, they were not modern day Christians with 2,000 years of, of gospel teaching behind them. They're first century Jews who have never heard this stuff before. They have no more idea than a goose what Jesus is talking about. I think they went away, I, I think they went away saying something, what was that camel and needle uh, stuff all about? I really do. But, but why is every incident in this story recorded almost exactly the same, almost word for word in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Why are the same words used? Why is it in the same order? You, you know what I think why, why that is? I think it's because it was indelibly burned on their brains because they said, we have never heard anything like this before. The Pharisee, Pharisee said, if you're rich, that's God's proof that you did. If you're poor, that's God's proof that you didn't. If you're wealthy, it's God's proof. If you're healthy, it's God's proof. The line is drawn. Do have. Jesus said that the people who have the most are the least likely to go to heaven because they can't see over the packages in their arm. They can't hear the warnings. They don't hear the truck coming and they step into the street and get run over. But the guy who's clutching nothing but a coloring book in his hands is the guy that's most likely to at least see the truck. He may still step out, but at least he's more likely to see the truck. However, to make it clear, he's not going to go to heaven because of his poverty. He's going to go to heaven for the same reason that anybody else can go, rich or poor, because of the grace of God. Jesus said, with God... All things are possible. The truth is, without him, any of us getting into heaven is like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And by the way, when you hear that, uh, there's, there's some teaching that went around quite a while ago that said that there was, a, there, there was a gate in Jerusalem that was a smaller gate and they had to undo it. But Luke used a whole different, he used a medical term describing a needle for, for the surgeon uses. He makes it very clear. No, I'm not talking about that. that uh, he says, Without, with, with, without God, it is impossible. And Jesus said, but with God, all things are possible. 
So what's the safeguard in, in all of it then? What, what is, what's the safeguard? Maybe you're sitting there asking yourself, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I, I think maybe I'm one of those people. And in a lot of ways we are. And there's nobody here that, are, that, are, that I know of that are millionaires. But most of us, if you compare your life to people in most of the world, you are, you are, you are wealthy beyond their wildest dreams. And you, you say, I, I think maybe I'm one of those people. God has just piled my arms full of packages. God has prospered me. Have I sinned? And I'm, I'm not saying anything of that sort. But what then is the secret? I have the answer for you, my friend. Here it is. Earn all you can. Save all you can. But make sure you can see over the pile. Make sure it's not controlling your life. But Jesus is. There's a truck coming and it's coming hard. If you can't see, get rid of some stuff. And how do you know whether you can see or not? Let me put it this way. If the Holy Spirit said, give that away, is that something you would struggle with? That, that's, a, that's a very difficult thing. And I know it's easy to say, oh yeah, I do it. But yeah, you might do it if, if he said, well, you know, give your... 15-year-old iPod away. But if he said, I want, you to, I want you to sell your house and I want you to use that money to make a difference in the world, it's a little different decision, isn't it? And I'm not saying anybody should do that. I mean, God says to do it, do it. But I'm just saying, if, if it controls us, then we're serving the wrong master. And our our packages are piled up so high that we can't see the truck coming now now let me close with this why does this incident happen right at this moment in this way in all three gospel accounts it happens immediately following what remember the children coming to jesus these children come running to Jesus. I can just picture it in my mind. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And they're running to him. They, they have nothing in their hands. They can't do anything. They can't earn anything. They are not educated. They're, they're not capable. They don't have any great ministries. They're just empty-handed, open, loving children. Jesus, Jesus. And the disciples operating under the teaching of the day say, oh, wait, 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 wait. Those kids, they can't do, therefore they can't have. They're just children. They have no capacity in the kingdom. They have nothing to do. Not, they can't do anything for us. Therefore, they cannot receive. Get those kids out of here. However, Jesus is not talking about doing and having. He says they are children. And of such is the kingdom of God. Of such is the kingdom of God. They are children. Therefore, what is the secret of the kingdom? The secret of the kingdom is to as often as possible, as much as possible, keep our childlike relationship with our Father. That's why I love our, our new friend, little Anna, on Sunday mornings when we finish a, a worship song and she's back there in her, in her childlike innocence and just just yells, yay! I sit up here and often tears come to my eyes and I think, Jesus, let me respond with that kind of childlike faith, that kind of childlike response. What was it that the man had? Everything the world could offer. What was it that he lacked? 
dependence on God. When I have so much that I no longer need God, then I have too much. Well, you've been very patient tonight with a very complicated and rambling teaching, and I hope somebody here has been able to mine something out of this thing somewhere. But let me just close with this one statement, and then we're going to close in prayer. Are you ready? It's not what I have, but who I am. Not what I have done, but what He has done. Not where I am, but where I shall be. And not who I am, but whose I am. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the lesson of this rich young ruler, this young man who wanted to add life, and he, he drew that line. Lord, I just pray you'd help us not to draw the line in the wrong place. Lord, that, yes, we should draw it here in this world. That's the way this world works. We should, we should be people who work hard, and not, not, we, we shouldn't be the kind of people that expect uh, uh, entitlements and, and ex- expect handouts, but God, we should be people who will, who will, who will do so that we can have. But God, we, we clearly understand that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It does not work in the kingdom of God. It, it can never work. Lord, keep us from falling into the subtle traps of legalism and Phariseeism. Keep us from falling into the trap of spiritual pride. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to constantly look at our lives and say, with all the packages in my life, can I still see clearly? Can I see who I am? Can I see who Jesus is? Can I really see how much I need him? And God, if there's ever a point in our lives where we can't see clearly, I pray that you would give us the courage and the faith and the anointing of your spirit, because Lord, we'll never be able to do this on our own. But give us the power from your spirit to be able to say, okay, I have too much. I've I've got to get rid of some things because I don't want to miss out on eternity because I'm caught up with the temporary. Help us to live that way, Lord God. Help us to learn the lessons we need to learn from the the rich young ruler. And help us, Jesus, to let the world see that it's your grace that saves us. Help us as we communicate that to a world that's constantly working to do so that they can have. And I give you praise and thanks in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.